Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. As you sit down, uh, if you want to take your Word of God and open it up to Hebrews chapter 11, we will begin with verse 8, still in the... uh, All of faith, as it's called in Hebrews, where the faithful is declared uh, those that have gone before from the Old Testament. And we begin reading at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered him faithful, who had promised Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's go to God in prayer and just ask him for his help during this time. Father, we, we do ask for your help. We are dependent on you uh, to lead us and to guide us into all the truth. We, <clears throat> we were once blind and deaf. You've given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts uh, to feel in Christ. And so we just pray this morning that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And we trust in the promises that are according to your word, about your word, that your word never returns void, that it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, that it is able to expose the heart And we pray for that work. Lord, your word, you tell us, is settled and fixed in the heavens. And so, as we open up your word this morning, help us see Christ. Help our faith to be increased. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, I'd ask the question this morning to you. uh, Have you ever been on a sports team Have you ever played on a team, been on a team? I enjoy sports. I enjoy watching sports, but I preferably like team sports than others because you you get to see the inner dynamic of of the team, of the players. When Tiger is playing by himself, 
the 18th tee at Augusta or Nadal's on the clay courts of Wimbledon. Uh, it is something to see, but I appreciate the, the team dynamic. Uh, and team is really a term that goes beyond sports analogies, that it extends to even to the workplace. And so you have a dynamic within a workplace of a team, of a group of people that is working together for a specific goal. And the dynamics of that team are extremely important. And it is why in the business world, we've come up with these practices called team building exercises. Companies value team building exercises. A Forbes uh, article that was published in 2016 highlights just the importance of these practices within a company or within a team. And one of the most outdated team-building exercises is the trust fall. I don't know if any of you have ever done the trust fall. This is where you stand elevated and have your team behind, you know, lower than you, and you essentially fall back, trusting that your coworkers or teammates are going to catch you. And supposedly, this is supposed to induce trust within a company or within a team. It boosts morale. It it encourages better communication. It deepens relationships. But maybe you've watched uh, trust fall fails on the internet where people may have been blindfolded and they've fallen forward the wrong way onto their face. Or those who are supposed to be catching you get distracted and they put their arms up too late and you hit the ground the faith of that individual is seen in their willingness to fall. And their trust is really secured in those who are going to catch them. I'd be pretty secure among our staff to fall. Miss Debbie catching me, Mac, Jonathan, David. I trust that they would fall. But you see the faith exercised in the willingness to fall back. Well, we find ourselves this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 in a call to trust the Lord. Over and over through the book of Hebrews, the author is calling these Christians to persevere, to continue to demonstrate fruits of the Spirit, to not grow cold in heart, to not fall away. And so, this section of scripture this morning is born out of Hebrews chapter 10. The last part of that section is that the author of Hebrews is saying that I trust that we are not of those who shrink back, of those who fall away. But his confidence in this group of believers that he's writing to is that the work that God had begun in them, he would bring it to completion. And so he goes on this rabbit trail almost. He gives this, this illustration, this beautiful retrospective illustration of what true saving faith looks like in the life of a Christian. And this morning we're examining the father of faith, Abraham. When the New Testament writers wanted to give an Old Testament example 
of what true saving faith looked like, they looked to Abraham. He's given a massive portion in the book of Genesis, his story, his walk, his life, his death. In the hall of faith, he's given more verses than all the other characters. Paul in Romans chapter four makes the argument that justification is by faith alone and he uses Abraham as his example from the Old Testament. And James, when he wants to make the argument that faith by itself produces works, he uses Abraham. And so it is no shock that the writer of Hebrews does the exact same thing. So let's look at the text this morning. You follow along in your outline. I'm going to do my best to stay with it. It won't be on the screen. It will be in your hands. And so we see from verse 8 that I want to focus on the truth that faith obeys. Faith obeys. We could preach an entire series on the first four verses in this passage. By faith, Abraham obeyed. And so if you've read the story of Abraham, it begins at the end of Genesis 11 and picks up in Genesis 12 at his call. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 reads this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. Genesis chapter 12 verse 4 says, So Abram went. And so the Bible resoundingly answers the question of all questions, which is how can a sinful humanity be in a right relationship with a holy and righteous God. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He uses this, I mean, he, he reiterates himself within this long run-on sentence in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified, that is made right with God, A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul, we hear you crystal clearly. It is by no works of the law that anyone will be be made right with God. It is only by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul, in Romans chapter four, as I mentioned earlier, uses Abraham as an example of this exact point. Romans chapter four, verse two. Paul says this, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but listen to me, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Christ The person of Christ, the work of Christ, is the true object of true saving faith. He is the only object of true saving faith. And that this morning is the gospel. 
that faith, true saving faith, produces obedience, not the other way around. It is not through our obedience or through our efforts to obey God that we are somehow granted and gifted with faith or favor with God. The Bible is very clear on this picture of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel is that we are way more sinful than we believe ourselves to be in in light of who God is in all of his righteousness, in all of his perfection, in all of his holiness, yet in his grace, he has provided a suitable sacrifice to take the place in the judgment and the penalty for sinners. And how do we receive this work, this gift? Paul says, I preach repentance toward God and faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. But the Bible is also crystal clear that faith alone is not alone. That true saving faith is never alone. It is never absent of works. That in the gospel, we trust in the work of someone else for our favor before God. We trust in what Christ has done, his work on the cross. But as a result of that true saving repentance and faith, that good works are now produced in our life because God has changed us. Listen, this morning, I want to make clear, and the author of Hebrews is trying to make clear through the life of Abraham that faith in Christ produces good works. He is not alone in his reference here, the book of James. James argues the same point and uses Abraham, as I said earlier, as an example in this, that faith without good works flowing from that is dead. Paul says, listen to this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. He says, for by grace, again, not of our own doing, you have been saved through faith. He says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no person may boast. We yes and amen that, that it's not based on my good deeds or my good works or my giving to the church or my church attendance or my moral rap sheet that I earn a right relationship with God. It's through faith in Christ alone. But we leave out verse 10 so often when we recite those verses. Verse 10 in Ephesians chapter two says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this morning, the author of Hebrews is, is arguing from the life of Abraham that, that faith is not punctual, that it's linear. It's not about a one-time event that does not produce a life change or a life of repentance and faith, that faith can be measured. Faith can be seen in the life of a Christian by the way he or she lives. It can be traced through a life of faith and obedience, an imperfect life of faith and obedience. So when we look at the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, we see this exact thing. We see the sovereign call of the Lord. 
In Joshua chapter 24, why don't you flip to Joshua 24 real quick? I want to, I want to highlight this because I, maybe I've skipped over it in reading the book of Joshua or having, having a limited understanding of Abraham's story and his, or his backstory, where he grew up. But Joshua gives just a, a little piece of, of history to, to who Abraham was before he was saved. And I think it will serve us well this morning. So as many of the biblical authors, they have this historical retrospective thing that they do. They, they recount the history of Israel. They recount the history of God's people. And this is what Joshua is doing in Joshua chapter 24. He's renewing the covenant that God made with his people. And he's looking back at the life of Abraham. So look at Joshua chapter 24, verses one and two. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So we see here that Abraham grows up in a pagan home. And that at the point when God calls him at age 75, he is an idolater. That he was not a good guy. That he was not seeking for the Lord. That the Lord sought him. That he lived in a pagan land, in a pagan family, serving pagan gods. And what happens when the effectual call of God goes out? Think about the story of Lazarus. As he is dead and rotten in the tomb and the voice, the word of Christ, the God man says, Lazarus, come forth and Lazarus arises and he comes forth. And so the call of Abraham, as he responds, this call of God, as Abraham responds, we see true saving faith, faith in God, the, his effectual call to Abraham. And then his life is demonstrated in obedience. Because true saving faith, listen to me, does not just start well. It ends well. Nobody gets written down in the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews for having a really, really good start. It's about finishing well. It's about a life demonstrated in obedience to the Lord. It's about finishing the race of faith. And so very clearly we see from the first four words that true saving faith produces obedience. And so if you have a faith this morning that, that has not produced obedience in your life, then according to God's word is not true saving faith. That there is more to saving faith in Christ than just intellectual assent. It's more than just believing certain facts about what the Bible teaches about a historical man named Jesus, that he died, buried, and was resurrected. James tells us that the demons believe those things and they shudder. But true saving faith is an inward work of God as he brings us to conviction, as we, as we trust, as we rest our souls on the finished work of Jesus and it's demonstrated in a life of obedience. Abraham obeyed the Lord. But let's look at the rest of verse eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed. So faith willingly accepts sacrifice and loss of comfort in the pathway of obedience. 
True saving faith willingly accepts sacrifice and loss of comfort in the pathway of obedience. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So if you recount the story of Abram, Abraham, Genesis 12, let me read the, the rest of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Go out from, this is the Lord speaking to Abram, go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and And those who dishonor you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham went. So Abraham is 75 years old, established in the community among the Chaldeans in Ur. He is probably a wealthy man, an established man, coasting into retirement. And the Lord calls him. And he says, leave your country, leave your kindred, both family and friends, leave the comfort of your father's house, leave all that which is familiar to you and come and follow me. David and others have shared the experience of buying a home without seeing it. To me, that's maybe more than, maybe there's a good bit of you that have done that, but I've heard that. They've just called up, give me the dimensions. Yeah, we'll take it without even looking at it. And we see here that God is very vague, right, in where he is taking Abram. That Abram doesn't have all the details. That he's not given a specific description of of where the Lord's going to take him or how all those specific details are going to work themselves out in the life of Abraham. But he willingly goes. And you can hear his neighbors in Ur. What do you mean you're leaving? Can you hear his family? Where are you going? A land. Well, I need you to be more specific than that. What do you mean a land? Haven't you just retired? Aren't you in your old age? Aren't you comfortable here? And they would have quickly labeled him as a fool for what he gave up in order to answer the call of God. And the world, and even some sadly in Christian circles, look at an example like this and say, oh, how sad. Look at what he lost. Look at what he could have had. But Christians with the eyes of faith see what he gained. Paul understood this in Philippians chapter 3. Paul said, indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Jim Elliott got it. He understood this concept, didn't he? 
willing to sacrifice for what was his phrase? He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. What had changed in Abram? What initiated this, this, this willingness to sacrifice? He had come into a relationship with the true and living God, that there was now an inward conviction in the life of this man, a gripping hold of what God had promised, the inward eye of faith, which views fellowship with God nowhere better than the finest amenities and luxurious comforts that the world has to offer living in sin. This echoes Psalm 84 and the sons of Koran. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so it is with every follower of Jesus that in the pathway of obedience to Christ, Church, that is a call to forsake, to forsake our sin, to forsake our self-righteousness, to forsake our pride, to forsake our way of living, the preferences that we might line our life with, all for the greatest treasure that is, fellowship with God himself, the blessings of obedience. The Christian sees these sacrifices as worth it, that Christ is worth those sacrifices. Abram, because of the saving faith that had been authored into his heart, saw the benefits of staying in Ur or going with the Lord, having fellowship with him. And because of saving faith, he saw these sacrifices as minimal at best, that there was a far greater fellowship to be had with God going nowhere. And what a hindrance our comfort can be to our obedience, can it? Our comfort, our love of comfort. This is why it is hard to be a Christian in America. That we would never wish persecution and thankful for those who have fought and died for the freedom of religion here. But comfort has a way of making us complacent. Of us resting too heavily on it. And our sights must be realigned with the call of Christ to take up our cross and to follow him. Spurgeon says this about obedience. He said, obedience may appear difficult and it may bring with it sacrifice, but after all, it is the nearest and best road. Her ways are in the long run ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Abraham's allegiance was no longer to his family. It was no longer to his community. It was no longer to those he resided with. It was no longer to himself, as it is with every follower of Christ. Our allegiance is with him who has bought us with his precious blood. Look at verse 9, continuing to show his saving faith. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Is, does that not just sound a little paradoxical? Like, do those two statements go together as the land of promise? But he went living in the land that God had promised him as a foreigner. Living in tents with Isaac Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. 
We are told that Abraham goes to live in this land, a land that he did not yet own. Promised him, but living as a foreigner. Not laying a foundation for a home, but living in tents. What royalty, right? But this inward conviction of trust in God, faith in God, causes us, causes him to live in a way that we would not live if we did not have these promises. Stephen, when he's doing the exact same thing that Joshua was doing, recounting the history of Israel in, in Acts chapter 7, he says that Abraham only owned a foot length of this property. And if you read the story of Genesis, you know that he's living in a pilgrim in the land that God had had promised, but when his wife dies, he doesn't even have any property to bury her. And so the only plot of land that he owns in the promised land was, the, was Sarah's plot that he could bury his wife. But this is the character of the life of faith. Lord, we know all that you have promised us and we are experiencing very little of it this side of heaven, but we must trust you. So how is he so faithful? How is he so willing to sacrifice temporary pleasures and comforts and luxuries in order to follow and be obedient to God? Well, let's look at verse 10. Faith looks forward to future promises. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew that the plot of land in Canaan in the Middle East wasn't it. We underestimate the amount of perspective and knowledge that the patriarchs had about the fulfillment of God's promises. And the New Testament author makes very clear that Abraham knew, he understood to some degree that this small piece of land in the Middle East is not the sum and full fulfillment of what God had promised him. That this small piece of real estate is not his true inheritance. And he understood and believed that God had so much more in store for him. It says that he was looking forward because he was not able to enjoy all the benefits of the promise in his lifetime or in his son's lifetime or grandson's lifetime. So what city is is the author of Hebrews referencing here? Because he says a city. He says he's looking forward with the eyes of faith to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Later in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the author refers to this city as Mount Zion, as the heavenly Jerusalem, as the city of the living God. Revelation 21 gives us the fullest and final explanation of what this city is, this side of heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 10 through 22. And that he was looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. He's looking forward to when Christ would come, judge the world, redeem his saints, he, was, he had his eyes fixed on future promises. He had his eyes fixed on heaven. He understood that this city or this place that he was dwelling in a tent was not it. They, he lived with another world faith. This land is a prototype, a hint 
of a concept that God draws out over redemptive history in his progressive revelation. He draws this theme out that this was the, the first little hint of God having a people and having a place where he could dwell with them in unity and in love. His eyes were fixed. My eyes would have been fixed on the flaps of my tent in the desert, wondering, Lord, what are you doing? How quickly we grow discontent that the fullness of God's promises have not come to fruition. Tell me the fixation of your eyes and I can tell you of your spiritual condition because I too have experienced the misery of looking everywhere but forward. Haven't you? Most of my depression and anxiety and ebb and flow emotionally is from looking around at my circumstances. It's focusing on my struggles or my sin leading me to grow discontent with the lot that God has given me, wondering and asking and doubting and swaying, Lord, what are you doing? We very easily grow into, into despair in this world or we grow comfortable and too concerned with setting up shop as if this world is our home. Both happen when we take our eyes off our promised future in Christ. We are pilgrims walking through a land. His focus was on heaven. And this is the secret to a long obedience. Fixing the eyes of faith on all that God has promised us in Christ. Tell me that the return of Christ doesn't play a vital role in our day-to-day Christian living. Abraham looks forward in faith, trusting that God will make good on his promises. But let's move to verse 11. Because the call is to trust the promiser. To know and to trust. True faith knows and trusts the promiser. We then shift to Sarah. In verse 11, by faith Sarah received herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so the author continues to reflect on God making good on his promise in the life of Abraham and Sarah. He focuses on the promise of Isaac. And so the entire weight of God's promise to Abraham had to come down to one significant detail. And that was a son, How am I going to have descendants if there's no son? How are descendants going to fill the land that you're going to give me if there is no son? And everything was working against their trust in God in this. Sarah was barren, but not only was she barren, she was past the years of childbearing. Abraham, old in his age, beyond the age of childbearing. But God says to Abraham, In Genesis 17, 15. And Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of the peoples shall come from her. And how did Sarah and Abraham react to that promise? They laughed. 
In their mind, God had made a promise that did not take into account their physical limitations. But God responds in Genesis 18, 14, asking, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And if you read from the beginning of this promise until its fulfillment when Isaac come, they are grappling with this. They are struggling with understanding now, how is this exactly going to come to fulfillment? Giving God advice on what he should do to bring that promise to bear. And it ends up in turmoil and awfulness. They offer up Eleazar or or through Ishmael because they come face to face with the absolute natural impossibility and limitations of this promise. But we do the same things to God as well, don't we? we? We offer our thoughts, our advice, Lord, let me give you some advice on how you should bring your promises to fulfillment in my life. I, are you listening, Lord? In the midst of this seemingly unlikely fulfillment, where did the faith of Abraham and Sarah lie? And it lied in, it lay in, lied lay in, the integrity and character of God. What God had promised, he would do. And when you boil down this situation, all of God's promises, he is either going to do what he says he will do or he will not, ceasing to be God. The source is something that we often consider, isn't it? Like Bo says, Scout wants to watch PJ Mask. And I think, maybe you just want to watch PJ Mask. I'm like, does, does Scout really want to watch PJ Mask or is this Bo? saying, wanting to watch P.J. Masks and thinking that his dad's going to cave on his daughter's request than his son's. Dads know about that. Or think about the political climate in our day. That you know that your interpretation of what you believe can often rest on the source in which you get your information. And the frustrating thing is we want objective information, but you can never get objective information to base votes or policies or anything. Because we ask the question, how do I know that they're not looking out for themselves, giving slight alterations to the narrative that benefit themselves and their agenda one way or the other? If I'm going to base the action on my vote on the information that's given about a candidate and what the talking heads give me, I've got to consider the source. And so Abraham and Sarah considered the source. And it was God. God, who as one man put it, whose speaking is his doing. God, the standard of all truth. And according to Titus chapter 1, verse 2, never lies whose character and nature are in perfection, whose power is seen in the creation of everything out of nothing, whose wisdom is infinite, whose reign is eternal, whose love for his people is an everlasting love. They considered him faithful. Against the odds of their pregnancy with the knowledge of God, the scales far outweighed the character and integrity of the God who had called them. The author of Hebrews has already done this one time in the book, in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Why? For he who promised is faithful. When Paul wants to reassure the Philippian church that the work of sanctification and growth and maturity in Christ's likeness 
is going to be finished, he looks to God. He does the same thing. He says, for he who began a good work, he will bring it to completion. That you will be sanctified until glory based on the character of God. Because church, there will be times in your life when this is all that you have. There will be trials and hardships and temptation that will cause doubt in the purposes and the providence and the promises of God. And all sometimes that you will have to cling to is the character of God, the integrity of God, the name of God. And so what increased Sarah's faith, Abraham's faith, is intimate knowledge of God. If we want our faith to increase, to trust his promises that lead us to obey, we must come to know him deeper. We must spend more time in his word. We must be fellowshipping with God in prayer. We must be obeying Hebrews 10 and drawing near with confidence based on the blood of Christ and to the presence of God. Is that the better we come to know and understand who God is, there will be a direct connection in our willingness to trust him and obey him. But lastly, let's look at verse 12. God makes good on his promises for his glory. He makes good on his promises for his glory. We True faith trusts God to make good on his promises. Because spoiler alert... The Lord made good on his promise. Therefore, from one man, and listen to this, and this man as good as dead, talking about the probability of him producing a child, he and his wife, this man as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. Descendants were born, lots of them. Through this one man, God created and kept his people. And the author of Hebrews, I believe in this little section, is highlighting what God loves to do. And that is to make promises against the wisdom of the world, the logic of the world, and fulfill them all for his glory. Abraham is good as dead. No one would have had faith that a promised child is going to come from this couple. But the Lord makes good on his promise. He does things. You know, Abraham walking through his life did not live a life of perfect faith. He does things. If you just read the account of Genesis, he is a sinner, as are we. But he persevered and he trusts the Lord. God makes good on his promises for his glory in all of his promises. Why did he choose Abraham? Well, to get glory from saving and calling an unlikely convert, a pagan idolater, someone who did not love him at all, who was running against him, who was worshiping false God. Why why did God choose Israel? Well, the Lord tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the earth. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any, other, any of the other people, 
But it's because the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. Why did God scale down the army of Gideon? He does that to make good on his promises. Why did God choose a land full of giants and armies so that he might use a weak nation to put fear in the hearts of those in whom he would drive out and get much glory? Abraham obviously struggled with believing this promise and his struggles to believe led him to sin. Taking matters into his own hands, Abraham lived, listen to me, in the tension of the already but not yet. The recipients of God's grace, but still not seeing the fulfillment of that in his life. Things that he had been promised, that the hands of his soul had to take hold of and walk in obedience. Abraham lived in that tension. The phrase in that verse about him living in the promised land as a foreigner gives you an idea of that tension. When Peter is writing to churches who who are being persecuted, he gives them this title, the elect exiles, those who are chosen and loved of God, yet exiled. How, How do those two things work together? Well, if we're chosen, what do we do in exile? Because they've received the grace of God through the work of Christ, but they are yet awaiting, right? The city that Abraham references in his life, what he was looking forward to. And I often, I know you do too, live in this tension of being a recipient of the gospel and having all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places mine, but experiencing so little of it compared to what I've been promised, right? Our hope is in heaven. The God has yet to completely fulfill all of those promises. Or maybe he's fulfilled them, but we have yet to experience them according to his timeline. And I often ask the Lord, like, why am I having to wait for the fulfillment of these covenant promises? Why am I having to struggle against sin? Why is there just this indwelling sin that keeps me from fellowship? Why? Why are we still feeling pain this side of a resurrected body? Why at times that you tell me I can draw near and there are promises about having fellowship with God that I, I can often feel distant from the Lord. And with the psalmist cry out, Lord, how long? Lord, hear my cry. But it's for this very reason that God is delaying the fulfillment of the promises that he's given us for for his own purposes. The secret things ultimately belong to the Lord. And at the same time, as I sit here and complain about the struggles of living this side of heaven, God's been very gracious to us that he has saved me. He has been faithful to me. I I have a whole book that I can read that's inspired that he wrote that testifies to his faithfulness. I have personal examples in my own life. Because this side of heaven and not having the fulfillment of all these promises causes us, forces us to trust him. God doesn't zap me into glorification because he finds delight in his children depending on him. 
It causes to me rely, to rely on him, reminding me that I am not God. And God will do all that he has promised, not what I think that he should do. We need to remember that. The Lord's going to be faithful to his promises, not what I think his promises should be at this point in my life. The Lord delights in proving himself faithful. That, that we experience his faithfulness, it is good for us, it increases our faith, but it also glorifies him in proving himself faithful. The author of Hebrews is looking back on the way that the Lord had fulfilled the promise through Abraham, is walking by faith. And through this one man, there is an unbroken family line to Christ. You read the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, and read the genealogy from Abraham to Christ. Because this promise lands in the midst of a greater promise given in Genesis chapter 3. And through that family line would come Christ, the God-man, who would crush the head of the serpent on our behalf. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, based on the work of Christ, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest promise fulfilled in the Bible. And because God has made good on that promise, the promise of promises, he will meet all of our needs. He can sustain us in trial. He can satisfy us in temptation and he can bring us into glory. Well, the Forbes article said that there was a limitation to the team building activities, including the trust fall. It's that they're usually only one-time activities, that they're small in their scope and in practice. But for the Christian, our life is one big, long trust fall in the promises of God, to not be cliché. It is, um, it is a life lived trusting God, trusting him that he'll satisfy us in temptation, trusting us that he's near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. I could spend hours recounting the promises of God and how he's true to them, but let's pray. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.